Well, as we open to the next section in our series on Philippians, we find Paul hoping that his readers will be a light for Jesus in a dark world. Specifically, he says that they may shine among others around them like stars in the sky. It is shine, contrary to the typo you see in the bulletin where it says shining. We're not talking about like hurting anybody today or, or sinning for Christ. I've gotten a few texts that were pretty funny from some of you about the, the title. It's shining for Christ. Uh, we are not perfect. Sometimes there's typos in there. But this is what Paul is hoping, that they would shine among others around them like stars in the sky. Now, I am no scientist, but I have come across a scientific term this week known as albedo. Albedo is a measurement of how much sunlight a celestial body reflects. The planet Venus, for example, has uh, the highest albedo at 0.65. In other words, 65% of the light that hits that planet is reflected, depending on where it's at in its orbit. The almost kind of planet, or maybe not Pluto, has an albedo ranging from 0.49 to about 0.6. And then our night light, the moon, actually has an albedo of only 0.07. Only 7% of the sunlight is reflected, yet it lights our way so well on cloudless nights. In a similar way, I think it is appropriate to say that each of us has a spiritual albedo. The goal, 100% reflectivity. Paul says in another one of his letters, I don't know if this is going to be up on the screen or not, but in another one of his letters, his second one to the believers in Corinth, he says, we who with unveiled faces all contemplate, or another word for that is reflect. Maybe in your, if you like the old King James Version, you see that word mirror in there. The Lord's glory and are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord. We do not produce the light or the glory, of course, but we are to reflect it. And that is what Paul hopes his readers will do, fully reflect the light of Jesus in the dark world around us. Now, that sounds wonderful, doesn't it? Doesn't it? It it just makes a wonderful slogan, shining for Christ. Let your, uh, your life be a reflection of his light. It's so warm and and positive and wonderful. I may not always be a perfect reflector of Christ's life, but what a positive metaphor for how I am to try to live my life. But then I read what Paul says before that statement. The stuff he says we need to do so that we can shine for Christ. And it doesn't seem very positive or warm or wonderful. He begins in verse 12 of Philippians chapter 2. He says this, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Does that sound comforting to you? Does that sound positive? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work it out. Fear and trembling. 
doesn't sound so warm and fuzzy to me. When I think about working something out, I usually don't have positive connotations with that. I don't know if you do. Maybe some of you are trying to accomplish still, and maybe you haven't even really started yet, like me, that your New Year's resolution to work out more. But when I think of working out, it's hard. I've been trying to get up early in the morning. You know, if I don't get it done early in the morning, it doesn't get done. So 4.30, sometimes 5 a.m. in the morning, tiring workouts, sore muscles. Working out is hard. Or maybe you've got lots of things to work out at work like me. It can be stressful and overwhelming and never-ending, it seems. Or maybe you have some sort of an issue with, uh, in a relationship, whether it's with a spouse or a friend. There's something that you need to work out together, and, and you're dreading that conversation. You're worried about it, anxious about it. And maybe you're a parent that's, I don't know how you don't experience this, but you've had that experience with kids where they're fighting over something, blaming each other, and, and you can't figure out how to work it out, and so you say, just go upstairs and work it out yourselves. It's a lot of work if you have to be the one to actually work it out. So now overlay your usual understanding of that phrase, work it out, with this verse. And you will probably find yourself not even needing to be encouraged to do this with fear and trembling. It will come naturally to work out your salvation. I think it's just going to be something that induces anxiety here. Is that what Paul is trying to communicate? An anxious life where we work to obtain our salvation, shaking in our boots along the way, worried if we'll make it. I am sure that many of you already know the answer to that question because many of you also could probably bring to mind other uh, moments in Paul's letters where he would say the exact opposite to to that kind of idea. Like in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, my favorite text in Scripture where he says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Or how about Romans chapter 4, verse 3 through 5? What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. We know from Paul's other letters and and other moments in even the book of Philippians that he can't be talking about some sort of legalistic way to earn our salvation here. And we also know maybe from the immediate context that we can't apply it that way. Maybe you have already read ahead because the very next verse says, For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Isn't it good news that God's work is the cause of our work? So we know we can't be working in our own power to earn salvation. And then if we go back a little further to the previous chapter, we find another important piece of context as well. Philippians 1 verse 27 Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Remember we studied that together? Then, whenever, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. This is actually Paul's 
first work it out statement. He's just using different terminology. To conduct yourself worthy of the gospel of Christ. Most scholars say that chapter 2, verse 12 is merely a restatement of chapter 1, verse verse 27. He simply asks them again to let the gospel work through their lives. So we know this text cannot be a discourse on how to obtain salvation. It's an encouragement to those saved by grace to just be who you already are. So I think we've kind of worked out the work it out part. Well, what about the fear and trembling part? I think reading another context from another one of Paul's letters will help us understand this, where he uses that exact same phrase. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He says this, And so it was with me, brothers and sisters. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom. And I cried every time I read this (laughs) this week. I haven't cried in a while, so if you get um, some tears today, I'm due. I've kept it together for a while, but this one hit me this week. I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise or pervasive words. Well, I could relate to that. But with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. It seems to me that doing something with fear and trembling merely means recognizing the weakness you have and the power God has. I don't think there's a week that goes by where I don't feel unqualified, inadequate, or unwise as a servant of the Lord but I don't think there is a week that goes by where he fails to show up and demonstrate his power. Without fail, he reminds us, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. Make no mistake, family, the only way to live out your saved life in Jesus is in fear and trembling. Because only then are you living by His grace, allowing His power to be made perfect in your weakness. All right, I got to get myself together here. Okay, Paul, I think I'm back on board with this whole shining like the stars for Jesus thing. You know, we, we got through that first part. That is until I read the next part, which Louise was talking about in the children's story. Verse 14, he says. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. It gets harder as we... (laughs) So that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault and a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. Lord, I am happy to admit my weakness. I am good with putting forth a great effort to conduct my life worthy of the gospel. I'm willing to make sacrifices, put others ahead of myself. I'm willing to work as hard as need be, but I want to grumble along the way while I do it. Don't take that away from me. It is hard 
not to find something to complain about. Have you noticed that in life? I was reading a story about a man who came home one day and immediately his wife started complaining, which made him to start complaining. They started this intense argument together. Arriving at 6.30 in the evening, they spent an hour trying to make things right and they couldn't. Nothing worked. So finally the husband said, let's start over and just pretend I'm getting home now. So he stepped outside and when he opened the door to come back in, she said, it's 7.30 and you're just getting home now? It's hard, right, (laughs) to not find something to complain about. And yet, Scripture challenges us. Do some things? No. Once in a while? No. Everything without grumbling or arguing. Oh, man. (laughs) I was with you, Paul. Even with the fear and trembling, I don't know how I can work this one out. I think it's helpful to know that maybe what Paul is really getting at here is more than just complaining about things that frustrate us or don't go our way, although maybe that's implied and we should take that to heart. But he's really talking about the importance of unity in the body of Christ. Most scholars agree that Paul is echoing Israel's desert wanderings here and the struggles that they had with grumbling and arguing. Have you read some of the Exodus and Numbers, you know, verses? You remember all the arguing and grumbling that they did to Moses with each other? In fact, you may have a reference or a footnote in your Bible for verse 15 that points out how Paul, when he's talking about the crooked and depraved generation, he is referring to language in the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 32, which describes the Israelite generation whom God brought out of Egypt as crooked and depraved. So what he's doing here is he's bringing the past failures of their ancestors into view, and that past failure was that they were to be a light, right, to the Gentiles, but failed to do so because of the discord and disunity their grumbling and and arguing caused. In other words, their disunity dimmed their spiritual albedo. The Philippian church is also at risk of the same thing, happening to them. We'll read more about that in chapter 4. So Paul says, learn from the mistakes of your ancestors. Do everything, everything without grumbling or arguing. Strive, in other words, to be unified. Then your light for Jesus will shine. Isn't this what Jesus says so plainly in his prayer for us in John 17? Have you read that lately? I just want to share one of those verses with you, verse uh, 23, where he says, I desire that you would be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you have sent me. It is quite a thought that the believability of Jesus is bound up in the quality of our unity. It's quite the thought. We can preach till we're blue in the face, hand out thousands of tracts, hold hundreds of Bible studies, but what Jesus says will help the world believe in him is the quality of our unity. We can do all that other stuff and people come in and say, I see the the way in which you guys live and operate together. I don't think this is real. I don't believe. Now, there's a lot of things we could say right now about 
how to increase the quality of our unity, how to foster that oneness and live together without so much grumbling and arguing. It doesn't mean that we, we aren't honest with each other and open and authentic. In fact, it means we are very open and authentic with each other, but we aren't grumbling and arguing. Since I have limited time, I thought I would just share one way that I think helps us increase the quality of our unity as the body of Christ. Many places we can go in Scripture, but why not just focus on something right there in Jesus' prayer? I think one of the best ways to increase the quality of our unity is taking to heart that last phrase Jesus says in verse 23. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. That is an absolutely mind-blowing statement from Jesus. I'd like to read to you a few words from Pastor Tim Keller, who makes the following commentary on that text, on that phrase. He says, to understand this, ta- this statement, uh, sorry, to understand this ta- statement takes you to the heart of the gospel. If you believe that maybe God will take you to heaven only if you live a good enough life, you'll always be anxious. But if you believe the gospel, this is what you believe, that the Father, this very minute, loves you as much as he loves his Son. Let that sink in for a moment. The Father, this minute, loves you as he loves his Son, and he wants you to know it and experience it. Keller goes on to suggest the more you believe that, the more you let that truth permeate your life, the more capable you'll be to live in loving unity with others. I think he's on to something. I think other scriptures confirm that line of thinking. Texts we memorize when we're very young, we love because he first loved us. But it's not just the fact that he loved us first, it's the magnitude in which he loves us as he loves his son. I think it's going to be pretty difficult to grumble and argue the more we take in the magnitude in which the Father loves us. All right, Paul, I'm back on board with this shining like the stars thing. I think I can apply this, make sense of this in my life. And the last section is a little easier to, to you know, deal with on the surface, to continue to be on board. As I read the closing version, uh, verses of this section, we won't spend long on them, but I think it's important to read the close of this section. He says, and then I will be able to boast on the day, this is the last half of verse 16 in chapter 2, on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Here Paul hopes that on the day of Christ's return, the Philippians will have remained obedient to living a life worthy of the gospel and that his apostolic efforts will not be in vain. And in case anyone missed it, we, even though we've been talking about this life of living out a life worthy of the gospel, being rooted and empowered by grace and love, it doesn't mean it involves being passive. It involves effort and steadfastness and sacrifice. In fact, Paul especially 
talks about sacrifice here in the language he uses next, right? Where scholars think he is probably alluding to his death, where he describes himself as a drink offering that may be poured out. Drink offerings were a common feature in the sacrificial system, and often the offering was poured um, over a sacrifice. In other words, Paul says, my efforts may end in death. But even if this happens, he says, I am glad and rejoice with all of you, and you too should be glad and rejoice with me. This shining for Christ business is not an easy one. And there may be some tough circumstances ahead because we choose to enter that meaningful, wonderful life. But there is an enemy that does not want us to live in that wonderful life. This shining for Christ business, it can be tough, but it leads to rejoicing and gladness, even when someone like Paul is in prison or death is a reality in the future. We have already touched on this idea several times in our, in our series so far, but I think it's always worth mentioning that though pain and hardships will come, they are unable to drive out the joy of the redeemed, which Paul reminds us of here. In his book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, if you don't have that in your library, you need to get it, from Eugene Peterson. He has this interesting take on joy that I think ties in with what I think Paul is trying to get us to understand. He says this, joy is not a moral requirement for Christian living. Some of us experience events that are full of sadness and pain. Some of us descend to low points in our lives when joy seems to have permanently departed. We must not in such circumstances or during such times say, well, that's the final proof that I am not a good Christian. Christians are supposed to have their mouths filled with laughter and tongues and shouts of, and tongues with shouts of joy, and I don't. I'm not joyful, therefore I must not be a Christian. Joy, he says, though, is not a requirement of Christian discipleship. It is a consequence. It is not what we have to acquire in order to experience life in Christ. It is what comes to us when we are walking in the way of faith and obedience. I think that's what Paul is getting at here. As he walks in faith and obedience, no matter the outcome, even if he is poured out like a drink offering on a sacrifice, he knows the consequence will always be joy because he is journeying with Jesus. So how about it, family? Are you willing to shine for Christ? If so, I hope it's a little easier for you to leave here today committing to letting your salvation be worked out with fear and trembling, to do everything you can to do everything without grumbling or arguing, and to hold on to the joy that comes journeying with Jesus. Amen. Jesus, we love you. And today we pour out our affection and our devotion to you with a commitment to let your light shine in this world. In Jesus' name, amen.